0: Hello listeners, welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian and you're listening to episode 315 of Sustainable Minimalists, a twice-weekly show about intentional and eco-minimalist living. On today's show, we are looking at the problem of biodiversity loss from two opposing angles and oh my goodness, we're going to have fun. But stay with me for a minute while I break the problem down into incredibly simplistic terms. Let's say you have a beautiful backyard. In your backyard lives a family of a pretend bird. We're going to give this pretend bird a pretend name. You have a family of yellow speckled cutie pie birds in your backyard. The yellow speckled cutie pie species only lives in your backyard. It doesn't live anywhere else on the planet. And 52 years ago, so in 1970, somebody in your family went outside and counted the number of yellow speckled cutie pies that were living. There were 100 yellow speckled cutie pies living happily in your backyard. But now in 2022... You went outside and you counted. There's only 31 yellow speckled cutie pies. So there were 100 in 1970, there's 31 today. This is the data. The World Wildlife Fund just released its latest Living Planet report, and it did indeed find that populations of wildlife species have declined by over two-thirds on average within the last 50 years. So that's the science. There's the data. The data is not up for debate. But what is up for debate is what the data means. On today's show, I am offering you two different experts with two very different opinions. My first guest says, this data is quite significant. It's a really big deal. And then spoiler alert, my second guest says, wait a minute, let's not lose our hats quite yet. First up, I am speaking with Brent Loken. He is the global food lead scientist for the World Wildlife Fund. Brent, I'm really thrilled to talk to you today about the WWF's latest Planet Living report. Tell us what are the biggest findings from the report?
1: Well, I would say not anything surprising in terms of the global plummeting of wildlife populations pretty much everywhere around the planet. What this year revealed is that approximately a 69% drop in monitored vertebrate wildlife populations between the years 1970 to 2018. So that's pretty staggering. When you're thinking about the abundance of species globally, that we've seen pretty much a 69% drop, which is quite dramatic. What we have seen also is that most of this drop has happened within the tropics um, and what is so shocking about that too is that the tropical regions, that's kind of a double whammy for us because they also have the world's largest stores of carbon and so we're losing that and we're also losing biodiversity in these areas as well too. One of the third thing that we saw too within this report is that Climate change is going to impact a lot of wildlife species moving forward, and we really don't know what the overall impact that will be, but it's probably not going to be positive.
0: When the normal public, so people like you and me, hear about population decline, I'm not sure that the average person's ears perk up until they hear the words either endangered or extinct. So I know you mentioned that on average Populations of wildlife species have declined by an awful lot, by over two-thirds. Why is that concerning, even though these populations are not necessarily endangered or extinct?
1: Yeah, I think this could be a bit confusing because when the public hears 69% drop, they might hear, oh my God, the world has lost 69% of all species, right? But what what we're seeing that is it's a 69% of species numbers and abundance in different places, right? And why that's so concerning is that in order for a species to be able to thrive in a particular region, there needs to be a minimum number of that species within that region. Once it gets below some sort of critical threshold, um, even though like the species is still there, it's going to be pretty hard to save it. You can think of like the Sumatran rhinoceros, which you can find in Borneo. Their numbers, I think there's about 50 left in the wild. So although we still find like the rhino within the wild, their numbers are so low that it'll be really hard to save them. Um, And that's what's so worrying about this trend is that we've seen this precipitous drop of wildlife species all over the planet. And we really don't know what those tipping points are, you know, those points at which if the population gets below some certain critical threshold that we won't be able to save that population any longer.
0: Earlier, you mentioned that tropical regions had the most plummeting or the most staggering rate of decline of species populations. What is going on in the tropical regions that contribute to such decline?
1: Well, this is where we get into my specialty, which is food and the impact of consumption patterns, food production patterns have on the world's wildlife populations, the world's global carbon reserves, and what we're seeing all over the world, but especially within the tropics, is this huge increase in pressures and drivers to expand agricultural lands, which is encroaching on these incredible rainforests that are home to all this biodiversity. You know, we're seeing expansion for palm oil, for uh, soy and other products, beef, and as the world gets larger, we add more people to it. Uh, we're changing our overall global consumption patterns to uh, more resource-intensive foods. Those resource-intensive foods needs more land. Um, and a lot of this land right now is coming within the tropics, and we're converting this land extremely quickly. I used to work in Borneo. I've um, worked there for five years. And it's hard to imagine how quickly you can lose tropical forests. You know, I'd I'd leave for one month. And, uh you'd come back and huge swaths of rainforest would just be gone and cleared. So it's happening fast, it's happening quickly, and it's something that we have to stop.
0: I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. Are you saying that rainforests are being cleared at alarming rates because of the human species need to feed itself?
1: Well, yes and no, because of course we have to feed ourselves, right? And to feed ourselves is going to have an environmental cost. I mean, we're going to need land to feed ourselves. Approximately 40% of all land that we have on earth is used to feed ourselves. However, what is happening is, you know, we're wasting 30% of all the food that we actually produce. And a lot of these inefficiencies and waste within the system is driving a, a need to have to convert more land. What we found is that um, um, if we could take some of these inefficiencies out of the system, if we could actually reduce food loss and waste, if we could shift diets to uh, less resource intensive diets, we could actually feed every single person on the planet, up to 10 billion people by 2050, on the land that we have today without further expansion into these areas. So it can be done, and it's not necessarily an end result of feeding ourselves.
0: What other human actions have contributed to the decline in species populations? I'm thinking changing our climate by emitting fossil fuels into the atmosphere or logging or overfishing. Does the report have anything to say on other human behaviors that affect the natural world?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other human behaviors that are impacting the natural world besides how we produce our food. I mean, you you can think of illegal hunting and trapping, you know, in some of these areas. So even if you have an area which is off limits to land conversion for food production, a lot of these areas are facing increasing threats from hunting, right? So that is a pretty big one. And if you think back to that Sumatran rhino, Example: There's approximately 50 left in the wild. You lose one or two of those due to hunting. That's a pretty large number, right? You've got pollution. I think is a is a main driver in some parts of the world, like Europe. You know, so it's not just food production. It's, it's really context dependent.
0: My listener base really cares about the health of our planet and the life that lives on it. What can we do? What can you and I and everybody listening do? to help populations that greatly need it?
1: (laughs) This is a fantastic question because when I worked in Borneo and I was working on orangutan species conservation, saving clouded leopards and monkeys and such, and when I'd give talks, people would always ask me, what can I do? And this is before I started working on food systems. And I often struggled to um, give that tangible connection about what somebody sitting in North America could do to save orangutans, you know, halfway on the other side of the planet. But the great thing about food and why I actually work on food systems now is it gives, it's such an empowering place to work. It gives people agency to be able to make those individual choices and decisions to make the world a better place. Just shifting diets, you know, shifting to a less resource intensive diet. Um, one that has less animal source foods within their diets can have a huge impact, a huge immediate impact in terms of the land footprint, in terms of like the carbon footprint that, that you are having by eating those foods. And that's something that every single person listening to this podcast today can, you know, can do. That individual decision and choice is really on their plate. As long as foods are accessible and affordable to all people. And that's another issue that we have to work on in all parts of the world. But that's one of the great things about food is that individual agency that it gives us.
0: Yes. And it's a choice we make at least three times a day, right? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's three opportunities that all of us have to help to do our part. What do you say, though, to people who, first of all, they know that eating more plants is the eco-friendly action, but are reluctant because they say, well, one person doesn't make a difference or, um, you know, the, the masses. Many, many, many people need to get on board with a plant-based lifestyle in order, in order to make an actual difference. So I'm not even going to bother. Do you have anything to say to them?
1: Oh yeah, well actually one person does make a difference, right? I mean anybody that has kids really understands the power of a single individual to actually create change and nobody fully understands how an individual action and lifestyle choice in action, what like the ripple effects that it will have, um, whether it's on your friends or family or kids. So you, you can think of an individual kid coming home and telling their parents to change this or Then they get the school on board, and then they tell their friends about it, and all of a sudden you have this ripple that spreads throughout society, and that puts pressure on the government leaders to create action. They put policies in place. That puts pressure on the international agencies to be able to make international rules like the Paris Climate Agreement. Those ripple effects have to start somewhere. You need both the top-down and bottom-up. When we're thinking about individual action, though, it doesn't take the responsibility off of like political leaders as well too that we need the politicians to also step up and do their part. Hmm.
0: I really like what you said there about it must be top down and bottom up. Change has to come from all angles. But I wanted to just ask you since food is your specialty, if the trends that the Living Planet report found continue What do you think the consequences or implications will be for the global food supply?
1: Uh, You know, well, we don't really know for sure, but we do know that it's probably not going to be good. This is that interconnection between um, climate and biodiversity and food production. It's also intermixed. In order to be able to produce the food, we need healthy ecosystems. We need to be able to predict when rain's going to come. We need to be able to uh, make sure that the rivers are flowing. And all of that depends on these healthy ecosystems. And once we start to destroy that, um, ultimately the ecosystems start to break down, which ultimately will impact food and how it's produced. And if we look at the Ukraine war and the ripple effects that that's had in terms of the global food supply You can just imagine what's going to happen once large food production areas all over the world start to break down. So there definitely will be most likely a very negative impact on our food.
0: Well, before I let you go, Brent, let's talk about some good news. The report did find some species populations that are bucking the global trend, loggerhead turtle nests and even mountain gorillas. So. Would you like to talk about those populations that are increasing?
1: Well, I mean, I think that's, I think that's positive news, right? I think, and it also shows the resilience of wildlife and ecosystems to be able to rebound after declining. A lot of times it just takes a little bit of pressure, just easing off that accelerator and that gas pedal a little bit for these populations to rebound very, very quickly. And that's what we're seeing with some of these species so, I think you know, using a couple of these examples in terms of uh, rapid rebounds of species, and I think in some areas we saw it with COVID. Once humans started to get out of some of these areas, we started to see rebounds of animals very, very fast. I think the larger message, looking beyond these three species, is uh, just the resilience of nature, and that should give us all hope that it's not a doom and gloom scenario, and that if we just each individual, if they just ease off the gas pedal themselves. Stop putting so much pressure on the planet that that it will have those large-scale ripples. And we don't know what species that it, it will help save, but it will.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for giving me your time and your expertise. I wish you much success. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. There you have it. That was Brent Loken. He is the Global Food Lead Scientist for the World Wildlife Fund. I have linked to the entire 2022 Living Planet report from the WWF in this week's show notes. It's not light reading by any means, but it is necessary reading. We're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to hear from author and conservationist Michael Meta Webster. yield. If your soil lacks appropriate nutrients for success, your garden may not succeed. And so this year, I am so excited to cultivate the soil before planting the plants with Coast of Maine's organic products. Coast of Maine believes in nurturing relationships with local retailers. So next time you're at your local retailer, look for Coast of Maine products. Get growing, visit coastofmaine.com to find a local retailer near you, coastofmaine.com. If you've been paying attention, you've likely heard something about gut health and why zoning in on your gut health is so darn important. And we're back. We're on to part two of today's episode, which is my conversation with Michael Meta Webster. He is an expert in ecology and conservation, and he has a new book out right now. It's called The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth. Michael, I read your book, and I must say I'm really excited to connect with you because personally, it was a nice change for me as a podcast host in the sustainability realm to Read a text and hear some news that wasn't all doom and gloom. So let's start there. What on earth is the rescue effect?
2: So, the rescue effect in nature, as I've described it in the book, is this sort of natural tendency that exists for life to persist. When you think about an organism or a population or a species, what they experience in the environment is changes in conditions, changes amongst you know, across seasons, across different days, and also bigger changes like storms or diseases or other things that might happen while they're alive. What happens when an organism is faced with a changing environment, though, is that there's all these mechanisms sort of built into their biology to deal with that change. And those mechanisms, as I've described it, sort of add up collectively to this thing called the rescue effect which is nature's inherent tendency to persist and adapt to a changing environment.
0: Can you talk about the six types of rescue very briefly that make up the cumulative rescue effect?
2: Sure. So I'm a biologist. Uh, I'm interested in ecology. I'm interested in how species work. I'm interested in evolution. And when I started researching this book and sort of thinking about what's going to happen to life as it's faced with new challenges like climate change, Uh, You know, I did what any good scientist would do is I sort of broke the problem down and said, okay, what are the options that organisms have when they're faced with change? And by my count, I came up with six of them. And so these different components do add up collectively to the rescue effect. And, you know, examples of what's going on here are things like what I call geographic rescue. So when a species lives in a particular place and that environment begins to change, it might get to the point where that place is no longer suitable for that organism to live, But for many species, what they'll do is they'll move to a new location Uh, through dispersal. They'll sort of sample different places in the environment, and they may find a new place that actually works better for them. And so that species can move from one location to another. Another example is evolutionary rescue. So when a species is confronted with a changing environment, one thing they might be able to do is actually evolve their way out of the problem, take on new traits or have selection happen in their population so that... After they've confronted this change in their environment, uh, they look different genetically and they've actually evolved to respond to it.
0: So it all sounds good, Michael. Uh, Nature has a inherent ability to persist, to survive. However, as I read your book, the first question that came to my mind, and I'm sure many of my listeners who are listening right now, is, well, if that's all true, then why do species become endangered and extinct?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And listen, the rescue effect is really strong in nature. And if we look at the species around the planet, the vast majority of species are not in the category that you're talking about. As far as we know, the vast majority of species are doing just fine right now. It's a relatively small share that right now we know of are in lots of trouble. And so while the rescue effect is strong, It's not foolproof. And what happens is that as the amount of change that species experience gets higher, as the speed at which that change happens gets higher, species can have a harder and harder time keeping up. And that's when it makes sense for people who want something to persist to start intervening on behalf of the species and try and find ways to correct whatever it is that is uh, causing them to decline, uh, allowing them to persist. But again, That's not the case for most species on the planet. It is a relatively small share right now that are having the most trouble.
0: Well, I want to talk to you about how you and I and how everyone listening can help the species who need help. I did take that as a big takeaway from your book. But let's talk first about how humans are contributing to the extinction of species. You write in your book that by some estimates, extinction rates today are 1,000 times higher than before humans came on the scene and took over. So how are humans contributing to the decline of the species that are going extinct?
2: Well, I I mean, the answer to that is in almost everything we do, because humans have really taken over the planet and we have restructured the planet in ways that suit us, particularly suit us, you know, during the time when we're alive. For example, on land, we've transformed something like half of the world's surface from what it used to be to things that suit our purposes, like cities and agricultural fields, et cetera. In doing that, we've changed huge amounts of habitats and places where species used to live. We also harvest lots of things from the environment. We think of this a lot in fisheries, where we go out and we you know, pull things out of the ocean or pull things out of lakes in order to, to consume them. But harvest also extends to species that we are poaching and hunting to extinction, like elephants and rhinoceroses. Uh, we're also introducing species all over the world. So we're moving things around. And sometimes when you get species together that haven't been together before, one of them suffers or more than one of them suffers in those new interactions. And then the umbrella that sits on top of all of this is climate change. And by changing the world's climate, what we're doing is we're essentially changing the rules of every ecosystem on the planet simultaneously. Because once you change average temperatures, rainfalls, drought patterns, storm patterns, even chemistry in the ocean that's being affected by greenhouse gases, the rules that govern those ecosystems and those species begin to shift, maybe subtly in some cases, but maybe in more extreme ways in other cases. And nature is going to respond to that. Now, most things so far are, are actually responding to that in a way that's allowing them to persist. But the rules are changing, so the organisms that are more common are changing. The places that organisms that live are are changing, and some species are getting caught up in that in ways that's making it really hard for them to persist.
0: Well, some of the rescue that make up the umbrella rescue effect, to me, as somebody who's not an ecologist and has no idea what she's talking about, it sounds that it would take generations for uh, species to adapt. I'm thinking about the evolutionary rescue, perhaps the demographic rescue, some animals can't just pick up and move all that quickly. And so when we frame this conversation under the climate change lens, I would argue that climate change is rapidly speeding up the levels of heat in the atmosphere, right? So it's a rapid change. How does the rescue effect, which in some cases, and correct me if I'm wrong, can be slow can take time. How does the rescue effect keep up?
2: Yeah, this is a, a really excellent question because the ability for the rescue effect to work has to do with sort of, you know, sort of two important parameters about the change that's happening. How big is the change and how fast is the change? If it's smaller and slower, we should expect more things to be able to keep up. If it's bigger and faster, more things are going to get left behind. And climate is is a really good example to talk about here because you know, if we are committed to burning every last ounce of fossil fuels on this planet, um, we're going to see enough climate change that more and more things are not going to be able to keep up with that rate of change. You know, one of the things that I work on a lot is coral reefs, and we've done a series of basically mathematical scenarios models to ask exactly this question. Looking at corals and thinking about the ability of corals to adapt, in particular, the abilities of corals to evolve to deal with higher temperatures. Do we think that they're going to be capable of keeping up with climate change? Because you can imagine there's a rate of change. There's, you know, some rate that corals can, can evolve. What we found in those simulations is actually cautiously optimistic. Corals actually, even though they're relatively long lived organisms, it looks like they should be able to adapt to a fair amount of change in temperature through climate change. But there's plenty of caveats on that. One, it's a model and models are not necessarily always right. And then the other piece is, If we do nothing, if we choose not to address climate change at all, if we do nothing to try and address the other problems that are facing corals, the likelihood that they're going to make it through gets lower and lower. And so for me, there's a few different messages there. One is sometimes things can adapt faster than we might give them credit for. And yay, that's awesome. Two is that in most cases, we have an ability to affect the outcome here through our actions, both at the global scale of how we think about climate and what we choose to do as a species. As well as at smaller scales where people are interacting directly with the environment, the kinds of decisions that we make there right now are going to have a big impact on what the outcome is in the future.
0: Hmm. It has been said by many people that we may indeed be in the midst of the next great mass extinction, mass extinction of human beings. And so I'm wondering, I have to ask you, we're talking about ants and sharks and all of the animals that make up our natural world. But what about us? Can the rescue effect help the survival of human beings as a species? And if so, how do you see that happening?
2: Absolutely. We are the most adaptable species on the planet. You just look at where we live and how we've carved out you know, civilizations and societies in almost every corner of the globe. If you break down those individual rescue effects and apply them to people, you know, one of the ones that you're going to see is it sort of biggest for us is, is, is what I call in the book, phenotypic rescue. And this is the ability of a species to change its physiology or change its behavior or its appearance to deal with environmental change. For us, the biggest one is behavior. We can use tools. We can use shelter, air conditioning during a heat wave. We can move water from one place to another. We can use our behavior and our intelligence to restructure our entire environment even as the environment outside changes around us. Um, So humans as a species, obviously there are individuals that have that ability and other individuals that don't for a whole variety of of reasons. But as a species, we are extremely able to deal with change in the environment and restructure our lives accordingly.
0: So what I hear you saying, Michael, is that I shouldn't be staying up all night worrying about (laughs) my
2: children's futures.
0: Is that accurate?
2: No, I wouldn't put it that way. So here's the thing. I've worked in conservation for a long time, and what I've noticed is a lot of people who work in conservation do spend a lot of time staying up at night, worrying about the future and feeling depressed and gloomy. And those feelings are coming from a real place. There are lots of challenges we have in the environment, and there are lots of things that I am concerned about, and I do the same thing. But part of my point in writing this book is that that isn't the full story that we should actually look to nature as an ally in helping us figure out what this is going to look like. Nature's very good at taking care of itself. And we see that everywhere on the planet that we look. Our job is to figure out, well, what is important to us about nature and when and how should we intervene? I find the gloominess and the concern in conservation sometimes to be hugely demotivating because it kind of feels like we have this enormous set of problems. We couldn't possibly make any progress toward them. And I understand those feelings, but One of the things that I tend to focus on in my work and that interests me is, well, where can we make a difference? Where can our activity today make a big difference tomorrow? And I find that much more motivating than fear. I'm much more interested in saying, okay, we can do this. How can we do it? And the work that I've done in my own research, as well as in this book, tends to point toward places where we do have the ability to affect our future in positive ways. We haven't lost this. We haven't lost you know, you mentioned are we in the middle of a of a, a great extinction event? If we are, we're at the very, very front of it. You mentioned that thousandfold increase in species extinction at the beginning of this. Well, if we fast forward that and say if we sit at that rate for the next hundred years, for the next century, how much of Earth's biodiversity will we have lost? The answer is around one percent of species. And while we should care about that one percent of species. There's another 99% of species out there that, at least based on that prediction, we will not have lost in the next century. So to the extent that we are on this trajectory toward a major extinction event, we're really at the very front of it, which gives us a lot of power to try and influence where it goes.
0: Hmm. Well, you mentioned influencing there, and that's what I want to talk to you about next. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Michael, I'd love to speak to you about how... You and me and everybody listening, how human beings can help give species a leg up. So we'll get there after a quick word from this week's sponsor. And we're back. I'm speaking with Michael Meta webster He is an expert in ecology and conservation, and he is the author of the new book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth. Michael, it is that time in the conversation where we need to discuss how us humans can give species a boost, a leg up. You do argue in the book that even with the rescue effect, which is good news, species still need our help. How can we help?
2: Sure. Globally, the best thing we can do to help is get a handle on climate change. And that ranges from individual actions around your carbon footprint all the way up to national and international agreements. So you can influence those sorts of things with your personal actions. You can influence those sorts of things through things like voting and who you support politically. I think that's probably the most important thing we can do. But the other things that I would point to to sort of think about almost philosophically when we're looking at conservation and we're thinking about the future of life You know, one of the things that I think we can do is we can really look to the rescue effect. One, because it helps species on their own. And by understanding that, we can choose when it makes sense for us to intervene or when nature can handle these things on its own. The second is that when species really get into trouble, we have a long list of really pretty powerful tools in conservation that we can choose to apply. And by applying those tools, we can help give species the upper hand, and we can look at each of those different six processes that sit under the rescue effect and ask, okay, for this species, which of those can we boost, and what is likely to be the response for species on the other end? The last thing I would say is that if you look at conservation as a field, it's sort of built on this idea that uh, we are trying to prevent species, we're trying to prevent ecosystems from changing, we're trying to conserve them and hold them in a particular state. Well, in ecology, ecosystems don't work like that. They're always changing as the environment is changing, as one species is gaining the upper hand against another species, et cetera. And when we look at longer timeframes, we see that species regularly change, our species as well as ecosystems. And I think one of the things we need to do in conservation is we need to stop expecting that we're going to create a world that's static. We're not going to be able to hold ecosystems in a particular state. We're not going to be able to take them back to what they used to be. Instead, they're going to keep changing just like they always did. Part of what we have to do in conservation is figure out how do we help them change in ways that keep things persisting while at the same time getting the values that we want out of nature. And so there's almost a philosophical shift that I think needs to take place in conservation from this sort of static view of nature to a view of nature that really recognizes change in nature as not only something natural, but as something good.
0: Hmm. Well, you mentioned a philosophical shift in the way we view conservation. And so I find myself wondering, did any of your colleagues, your co-workers, fellow experts in your fields have any choice words for you for writing an optimistic book that lacks urgency during this doom and gloom time? I mean, everything, the, all the news is doom and gloom, and you're coming out with this book that actually suggested to me as a reader to take a breath, to take a deep breath. So did you get any pushback from fellows in your field?
2: Sure. And, and the one thing I would, you know, raise there is I'm not convinced that I lack urgency. To me, uh, that in, in thinking about what we can do, I'm actually definitely more focused on the, on the optimistic side. Listen, people who work in conservation have gotten used to bad news. And in a lot of place cases, that's made people fairly pessimistic. And I understand that it's largely coming from a good place where people care about something, and they're worried about change to what they care about. But when I look at nature as a whole, and look at what nature is capable of, I do see a lot of reasons to be optimistic about what it can do to adapt to these changes. Now, we have to think in conservation as a whole about sort of What are our narratives? What are the things we tell ourselves about nature and about what we can do about it? And again, I think you are correct to point out that many people do tell sort of their story about how they think about nature in in, through fairly negative terms because of the things that they're witnessing. But I don't think that that is the whole story. I do think that there is a lot to really celebrate in nature, especially in how species and ecosystems are already adapting to the changes that we're creating.
0: If you want listeners to take just one thing away from our conversation today, what would it be?
2: It would be that we have the power to affect what happens in nature. We really have the ability to decide, are we on a mass extinction trajectory or do we want something else? It's within our hands. It has not gotten so late that that ship has sailed.
0: Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for writing an optimistic book during this pessimistic doom and gloom time. I wish you so much success.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Listeners, that's a wrap. One more time, I have linked to the World Wildlife Fund's 2022 Living Planet Report in this week's show notes. I've also linked to Michael's book, The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth in the show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 315. Now, if you are still listening, if you got to this point in the conversation, I just need to give you a pat on the back, say, go you. I do look at download numbers for this podcast for see how popular my episodes are, and by and large, the decluttering episodes, the intentional living episodes, people come out in droves to listen to those, especially the decluttering episodes and so when I do these top when I cover topics more related to sustainability um. People listen less, significantly less. And so I just want to say to anybody who is still listening and didn't trail off, hope you learned something. I will see you Thursday and take care.